Every year, the BMJ has a Christmas appeal. We've regularly focused on organisations like Medicines on Frontier or Lifebox, providing support to areas of the world which, for a variety of reasons, don't have good healthcare provision. This year, though, COVID-19 has changed everything, and we're focusing inwards on the UK. With growing unemployment, sections of the population being laid off, and with the well-documented delays in receiving universal credit, food insecurity has become a major issue in the sixth largest economy in the world. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast, I'm going to be talking to Martin Carraher, Emeritus Professor of Food and Health Policy at City University of London. He explains how this crisis is a long time coming, and the result of the inattention of successive governments to the issue of hunger. Twelve million people potentially in this country are now food insecure, um, and that's a, a massive increase uh, from about four million before COVID. That's kind of extraordinary. How on earth um, have we got here? That that such a you know up to what is that seventeen percent of the population um, are in that sort of food precarity. Okay, since I said that, people are now predicting that it's gone up to 14 to 16 million in some of the independent um, food uh, think tanks. The reason it's got that bad is, I mean, it's a reflection of what was going on before COVID. I mean, we, we knew that the use of food banks was the tip of an iceberg. We reckoned that for every one user of a food bank, there were three to four people that were in precarious positions. And people in those precarious positions were people on the gig economy, on short-term contracts, who survived from week to week. And they survived from week to week in probably three ways. One was their own family and community. So they went for help with the family and community. The second was the jobs themselves, but they were always one income away from, 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 from disaster. And the third was using um, loans and credit cards to tide them over. And we saw with COVID the collapse, particularly of the, the latter two, but also of family support, because it was difficult to get family support in the midst of COVID with social distancing and maybe your own family didn't have a job. We also knew in the first couple of weeks of the COVID crisis, 300,000 people on low incomes lost their access to credit cards because they were deemed poor risks. Now, they maybe they turned, there's some indication they turned to payday loans during that period. So, but they lost the means of support and hence ended up using food banks because they had nowhere else to go. And that, that growth in food banks, um, as you say, was, was, has been going on for a while pre-COVID. So what was the picture um, before that just blew everything up. I mean, we have 
incomplete data, I'd say. There are two there are two main sources of food banks in the country. One is the Trussell Trust, which is operates a franchise system. It's a faith-based system, largely Church of England. So local trusts pay and local food banks pay a certain stipend every year and get access to resources. And then there's a group of independent food banks. And I mean, the data is incomplete, plus the fact that the government hasn't been measuring food insecurity. It's supposed to be measured this year. We were awaiting the figures. So we didn't have a complete picture. But we know from the food banks themselves, they're reporting, the Trussell Trust are reporting a fivefold increase in applications for help. We're also hearing data from some of the independent think tanks and research units that people can't get referrals to food banks. And of course, food banks is in the first stage of the crisis. A lot of them themselves went into lockdown because their volunteers had to socially distance and a lot, some of their volunteers would have been in at-risk categories due to age or medical conditions. So mm. they were operating on a limited basis. I mean, the fact that we don't even have a good picture of this, we don't measure um, or we haven't traditionally measured the number of people who are in food insecurity, you think that that would be a a basic function of government to make sure that their population is, is fed? I mean, I agree. And since post-World War II, this has been a feature. The government have, I mean, after rationing in World War II, which didn't end until 1954, the population had a, had a reaction to rationing. But also the feeling at the time was the welfare state would solve the issue of food poverty. And in the 60s, 70s and 80s, food poverty was rediscovered. Peter Townsend in the 60s and 70s, the Child Poverty Action Group, which was set up in the 60s, um, Caroline Walker, Jeffrey Cannon, Liz Dowler, I mean, there's my colleague Tim Lang have, have inverted commas, rediscovered food poverty. It never went away, it was hidden. Um, and we're seeing the same thing now. And of course, there's a debate what causes food poverty. Some people say, well, it's just about people's individual decisions and behavior. And if only they would exercise judgment and good domestic economy, everything would be fine. Others of us see that poverty as more of a structural determinant, a structural issue rather than just individual behavior. So the debate goes on about this and some, some Governments have seen this as a as a matter of individual failing rather than a matter of structural determinants. I think that that view of it um, is perhaps also prevalent in some of the ways in which people's nutritional choices, um, or maybe its lack of choice, is seen as well. Yeah, I mean, if you if you think about people in a food insecure situation, I mean, what we know is mothers feed their children and often go without themselves but also in feeding your children you're very aware that the thing to do is fill them up and unfortunately filling them up is much easier what with energy dense food so food that's high in fat and salt and sugar often i mean largely processed food i mean it, there's also and um, we know from research um a, a planning issue behind this because people if they buy fruit and veg the kids eat the fruit and veg and you have nothing for later in the week or later in the month so people tend to buy processed food which keeps and also ironically tends to be cheaper 
And we know this from lots of research. Liz Dowler done work on this and she found, she used the term that food's the elastic item in the budget. You can compromise on food from a nutrition perspective and feed your kids. In the current climate, I mean, the 2008 crisis, when the great global recession happened, many of us, I mean, I'm still working on issues from the great global recession of 2008. For many of us, it never went away. But at that time, food prices mm -hmm. increased by 30%. Now, incomes have remained pretty steady since then, but other outgoings have gone up. So people have had to find money the compromise so they compromise on food because they can't compromise on other issues like rent or travel or whatever else um, and people are talking the food banks the food aid charities are talking about people saying well it's okay you're giving me fresh food but i can't afford to turn on my oven either either heat my house or turn on my oven we're hearing stories like that from the food aid agencies and poverty is one bit of of what's going on um but it seems like our, our food system has changed enormously. We have the growth of these kind of giant supermarkets, the um, the Walmarts and Tesco's and Carrefour's of the world, which influence so much about the way in which food is grown and distributed and, and priced. Uh, how much do you think that sort of industrialization of our, our of our food system is playing a part in this? I mean, I... I think it's partially to contribute. You know, I, I think that the globalization and the industrialization and the concentration in the food chain gives, you're right, it gives retailers incredible power. And up until COVID, that power was being challenged by hospitality. Of course, hospitality is in free fall. But they control, you know, what people grow, the prices they get, and they control the, the prices for us as consumers. I think it more widely, this fits into a larger government agenda about keeping GDP low, gross domestic product low. By keeping food prices low, you allow people to um, spend money in other areas of the economy, which is good for GDP. Um, I mean, currently in the UK, we spend on average, the average spend is 11.7% of, of income on food. On some European countries, that's up to 20, 25%. So we spend, and we don't spend a lot on food. The drive has been towards cheap food. And unfortunately, cheap food has come with a cost, a health cost, because it's contributed to cancer, coronary heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. To some extent, I don't, I mean, industry's got a job to do. I don't blame industry for that. I think this is a failure of government regulation. What sort of food system do we want? We're moving towards a more ecological food system with things called closed loop systems. And the industry are moving that way. I mean, they see this as good business. And they're not necessarily telling us this at the moment because they don't want to put us and um, they don't want to scare us or create panics, but that's the way they're moving in the next 10 years. But, I mean, that doesn't mean we won't have imports and exports from, we're not going to grow citrus fruit, you know, we're not going to grow coffee. Of course we live in ports. But they are moving more towards closed loop economies because it makes economic and financial sense to them. You, you keep costs low. But the failure has been one of government to regulate. I mean, if we think of the current COVID crisis, I mean, I'm a critic of the food industry. They don't like me. But um, in a sense, I think they've coped 
pretty well in the current crisis. They're the ones who found the solutions. They're the ones after the initial panics of panic buying in the first lockdown, they've opened up the food chains. They've kept them flowing. I mean, they've organized the, the queuing. They've organized delivery systems. Government have done very little. I mean, the failures of the, um, the voucher system, the distribution of the school meal voucher system, out of, out of school voucher system for school kids was a major failure of government. They gave a contract, which clearly the, the company didn't have the capacity to meet. I mean, it was a disaster. They've done U-turns on school holiday hunger. They're not talking about restoring the 20 pounds per week to universal credit post February which will throw a million people further into poverty is the estimate. So I'm a critic of, of the industry, but in fairness, they've, they, they're the ones who've delivered. Government have just stood on the bylines and let, let the industry get on with it. And I suppose that is the theme of the editorial that you, you wrote for us in the BMJ uh, last year about the lack of a kind of holistic um look at the problem of um of our food system and and hunger and and poverty and public health and and how it needs to be all sort of brought together and thought through you know as i said holistically rather than in these these different silos of um of of the things that you've talked about yeah i mean i I think that's true i mean the the lack of investment in public health at, at regional and local levels is pretty disastrous I mean, I'm currently researching stuff on World War II at the moment. One of the successes of World War II was that they had 2,000 local food committees who knew their local areas could help with ideas around rationing. I mean, in a similar way, we need to go back to that democratization of food. I mean, maybe we don't need 2,000 committees, but we need some public health initiatives at local levels. Because think about COVID. You know, the, the difference between central control and local knowledge. I mean, this is people know their local areas. They know where food poverty is more likely to be. We have the agricultural bill going through, but we also have the new, um, the new food strategy, which is due to be published. The, the consultation document is due to be published next March or April, and the government have given a commitment to responding to it. But the compiler of that document is on record as saying he's not, he doesn't even know what a safe level of home production is. Is it 6% or 60%? He doesn't have a view on this. So we're, I mean, the, and there's somebody, one of the policy advisors in the treasury is saying we should just get domestic agriculture grow, go because it accounts for 1% of GDP. The argument is we should just import most of our food. Now, the problems with that with Brexit and COVID and all the new deals that are going to have to be negotiated post Brexit probably throw that into a lot of question. But there's no comprehensive approach to food policy um, from the growing, I mean, from farm, from farm to plate. I mean, we've got the agricultural bill, the new food strategy, we've got obesity strategies, we've got poverty strategies, but we, very few of them talk to one another. I go back to, to 1949, the BMA produced a report on food poverty. Of, well, it was more about food and nutrition, saying there's a problem. I think we do need, like Louise Casey called for yesterday, a new beverage report. We do need a new highlighting of this issue for modern times. We need to think about 
you know, whatever the new normal is post-COVID, I mean, when the vaccine becomes online, and we, I think things will change. We're not going to go back to the way we were beforehand. I think people, you know, the hospitality industry implies three million people. Currently, half of those have lost their jobs. What are they going to do in the, in this new economy? City centres will not be like city centres at the moment. I, I think home working will continue. So hospitality will suffer. We need to think of what, what cities are going to be like and food is going to be like in those cities in the new economy. Paris is talking about the 15 minute city. I think we need to go back to that. Pandemics give us an opportunity to look at the way we live. This is, you know, TB in the 1930s influenced the way the town planning and how we, how we plan cities. I think COVID gives us the opportunity to look at new living and food in, in the future. That was Martin Carraher, Emeritus Professor of Food and Health Policy. Next up is Sabine Goodwin, the coordinator of the Independent Food Aid Network, who will receive this year's BMJ Charity Appeal money. Sabine helps pull the data provided by all of the different food aid providers in their network together to help build up a picture about the extent of the problem this year. The Independent Food Aid Network represents a range of independent food aid providers, including by now over 400 independent food banks. And we are there to to support them in their in their day-to-day work, which is filling the gap left by the social security system in the main and the absence of adequate wages. Um, but also we're there to collate data, represent our members in that way, and to advocate for the changes that would see the end for the need for food banks, the end for the need for charitable food aid. Just to, just, just to put, put our members in context I analysed data from 134 food banks probably a quarter of our membership um, they they represent um, 13% you know well under a fifth of all the independent food banks that IFAN has identified um, 900, at least 961 independent food banks are operating at the minute um, on top of that, there are 1,393 Trussell Trust food banks. On top of that, um, there are Salvation Army food banks. A few hundred of those at the height of lockdown, and we know that probably all of their 600 centres were distributing food parcels. On top of that, there are many, many schools now running food banks. Also hospitals, also universities. And we know that food aid providers that normally would be not giving out food parcels but running this kind of soup kitchen or giving out meals or running a social supermarket for example have been giving out food parcels this year because of the social distancing and covid measures that have been in place so um ifan represents a fraction of independent food aid providers but we do also advocate for small grassroots food aid providers in general. And I often will refer to organisations that are not necessarily sitting within our network, to be honest, because I feel that, you know, I must, and they might be part of our, our network and they need to be, you know, talked about. 
And um, as we're recording this, uh, just yesterday you were giving some information to uh, a parliamentary select committee about this. Um, could you give us the the top line of what you're you're talking to them about? Well, yesterday I spoke at the all party parliamentary group um, on ending the need for food banks, and I sp- spelled out the the latest data that we've just published looking at um, what's been happening over the last year when it comes to independent food banks and the numbers of people and the numbers of parcels that have been distributed. And I talked about the fact that now is the moment that we really, without question, have to be starting to address the root causes of this. And if we continue to respond only in, in an emergency format, we're going to be continuing to give out more and more and more f- emergency food parcels, and we won't be addressing what's at the heart of all this, which is lack of in- lack of income. So, how many people are using the um, the food banks within your within your network? Hundreds of thousands, actually, because when you work out, well, we, we've just done a, an analysis of one hundred and thirty four independent food banks. Uh, who were able to provide data for 2019 and 2020 between February and October. I'm saying just, but those 134, which represents 13% of known independent food banks, we we anticipate will have distributed more than half a million food parcels this year. So um, that's a 88% rise on the nine months analysed of last year. Mm. And um, from what you're saying now, it sounds like the people who are coming are people who probably never expected to to end up using a, a food bank. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the people that were might have been using a food bank before, of course, their situation has got worse too. Um, I mean, unlikely to have improved, of course. Um, but I think it's it's hitting so many people who were really maybe living quite comfortably before and they're finding that they they can't depend on on a, on a benefit system there is no safety net for them i'll just read from an email sent to me recently by one of our food bank managers based in lincolnshire because it sums up iphone's work steve steve ralph wrote i'm struggling to get people to see that every food parcel we deliver is still a sign of systemic failure, no matter how good the deed. I had an email from one of our members which said, they're coming to us because they don't have enough money to buy food, so they go hungry. They don't have enough money to heat their homes, so they live in the cold. They don't have enough money to heat water, so they are unable to wash and bathe. And on and on. But what is more worrying is that they accept that this isn't as normal. But what is more worrying is that they accept that this is normal and often don't seek help. How are food banks funded? How do they get um, the food to, to give to people? I think, you know, I've seen in the supermarket um, collection baskets and things, but that never seems like it would be enough in there to uh, um, to actually provide. The truth is that um, oftentimes the collections in supermarkets particularly are not for independent food banks, by the way. So they're usually for Trussell Trust because it's Tesco's has a deal with Trussell Trust or 
Asda, etc. But sometimes in communities, local supermarkets will, will make, make arrangements with local independent food banks and they will be able to access those donations. Um, uh, a lot of the independent food banks in our network will come up with systems within their community to seek donations. More recently, um, more and more people have been donating financially, which has actually been beneficial for our, our members because they've been able to buy what they actually need and they've been able to cater for healthier options, uh, special diets, culturally appropriate food. Um, that's actually been a positive, to be honest. Um, and some food banks will get um, local authority funding. IFAN itself doesn't advocate for that because we'd always say that any statutory funding should go directly to people in need and that any kind of funding like that going towards food banks is building infrastructure around a charitable food aid system. But if a food bank or one of our members is up against it, they you know they have to make these choices that you know to keep to keep going in order to support the people coming to their doors. Um, but before that happens, people are, as we've talked about, in dire strait and need some support uh, right now, which is why uh, the BMJ has chosen the Independent Food Aid Network as our um, Christmas appeal. Um, how is it that, that IFAN is actually supporting um, the food banks within your network? Well, the way that we support our network members, apart from the advocacy and representation through data collation, um, is to share information and to advocate on their behalf with government department. I mean, for example, with talking, representing them when it comes to accessing food supply with supermarkets, with fair share when it's necessary. Um, and we do also distribute small grants in order to, to, to help them with this in particular increases at the minute so that they can access PPE or food if they need to buy food um, in the short term. So we have been giving out small grants recently to our members during the COVID-19 crisis just to um, help them in as much as possible with the emergency responses, not to build infrastructure, but just to try to, you know, to, to, to help them because they often are really isolated on their own managing as grassroots organisations. They don't have the links to corporations that the bigger food banks have um, and you know some of them are linked to fair share but some of them can't afford to pay the fees that are charged by fair share to, to access their supply. How can people listening to this uh, donate money to you to, uh, to, to help you support people in the short term and perhaps try and eliminate food banks in the longer term? Well, on our website, there's a donate button, so you can make um, a donation there. Um, and also the BMJ has a system where you can send in a check um, and that comes straight to the Independent Food Aid Network. And as Sabine said, you can donate to the appeal now at independentfoodaidnetwork.org.uk slash BMJ. And I'll put that link in the show notes. That's it for this podcast, but not it for Christmas. We'll have a peek behind the curtain of the BMJ's Christmas research decision-making and be discussing Santa's human factors. 
As always, those will be available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. So make sure you've subscribed so you don't miss out on them. So until tomorrow, it's goodbye from me. Take care out there.